This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 30th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. How should the new administration think about and frame the debate over terrorism? What's the lasting legacy of the Bush administration's thinking and phrasing about terrorism? Christopher Preble, the Cato Institute's Director of Foreign Policy Studies, believes the Obama team has an opportunity to dramatically improve U.S. security. Preble will be among the speakers at the Cato Institute's Counterterrorism Conference scheduled for January 12th and 13th. You can register at Cato.org. Well, I think I think most people in Washington do think in terms of root causes, and so you hear arguments uh, along the lines of economic um, uh, distress or economic um, a lack of a lack of economic opportunity drives people to terrorism. President Bush made a related argument with respect to lack of political opportunity and gives rise to a sense of powerlessness, political power, powerlessness, and inability to influence the government. Um, and I think neither of those explanations, which are very popular in Washington, uh, are very useful because the, the fact is that there are many, uh, you know. Uh, Poor people around the world are many people who lack economic opportunities um, for a whole host of different reasons, uh, but but only a very tiny percentage of them become terrorists. On the flip side, you know, most of the 9/11 hijackers were uh, relatively well off. Um, uh, they were also relatively well educated, um, and so this argument about uh, lack of educational opportunities or the other building blocks that would allow you to to uh, achieve success economically. Same thing that applies in a political context is that uh, many people who uh, are not who do not have representation in government and do not you know do not uh, have an opportunity to express themselves through a normal political process don't become terrorists. So the question is really not what what factors drive people to terrorism, but but it's a combination of factors. And so we don't talk about root causes so much as risk factors. And what you see if when you when you use that frame of reference. You have to apply many different uh, levels of analysis, and you kind of have to integrate things. So what you find, for example, in terms of a risk factor, well, there is a problem of political powerlessness, for example, in Europe, where uh, where predominant kind of pockets of uh, recent immigrants to, to France or to the UK or to Germany um, do not have a lot of political opportunities, uh, and they are kind of kept separate that they become radicalized through a process of kind of group dynamics. Religion does play a role, but the mosque serves more as a kind of meeting point to, to, to further this radicalization. And so that's a, a, more, a, more, a much more sophisticated and ultimately more accurate way of looking at this inner, inner, inner relationship of different, different factors, both a sense of powerlessness, but also a sense of differentness, a sense of, of being separate or not having all the opportunities of a within society. Another factor which we have emphasized in the past and I think is still very important is the, the role of foreign occupation in various places. Um, you know, a, a very famous book on this subject published several years ago by Robert Pape at the University of Chicago and then, then Bob uh, subsequently published a paper for Cato that talked about the role that foreign occupation plays in uh, fomenting terrorism. And Bob's uh, argument is quite sophisticated, too, because he recognizes that it's not just the presence of foreign troops on soil. It's, it is that those troops have uh, certain different characteristics, typically ethnic or religious differences, which uh, tend to, to be much more uh, 
prone to drive people to violent resistance. Uh, it does require, however, a certain, again, a different level of sophistication because what you see in, in terms of many people who use the presence of, you know, for example, the presence of um, uh, Indian troops in Sri Lanka or, or Israeli troops in, in Gaza or the West Bank, they, these people who, who are using this argument are not necessarily victims of that occupation themselves. They identify with people who are in those other places, but perhaps they have not felt it themselves. So I think what we've seen, especially since 9-11, but of course terrorism studies have been around for many, many years, you know, going back to the the troubles in Ireland and and, and even before, um, and it just we've re- we've reached a level of sophistication um, where the the people who really do study this in, in great detail um, understand that it that it does not drive from one or even a few root causes, but it but it is much more complicated than that. What is the disconnect between what the academic community uh, understands about terrorism and the policymaking community uh, does uh, to uh, work on to right to stop terrorism well i think part of it is policymakers want to believe that that by making policy by changing policy by implementing certain things that they can affect good ends uh, the problem is if you if you accept a more as i say a more sophisticated a more complex explanation for this problem you quickly realize that that policy solutions are only likely to do so much and of course a lot of the problem is that you know policies implemented here in the united states cannot influence the sense of powerlessness of uh, you know recent immigrants from pakistan into the uk i mean what, what can the united states do this is a this is a country by country basis. Now, that does argue for better coordination between different countries and just and, and a better understanding of the roots uh, what drives these the problems of of violent extremism, but um, it it undercuts the kind of simplistic, easy answers. Well, we'll we'll provide more economic assistance to people, and this will solve the problem, or or dramatically reduce it, or we'll provide political opportunities. However, we can do that. It cuts against these the very simple explanations and the simple policies, and and suggests that that uh, it is it is going to take more than frankly more than government policy to to reduce the salience of terrorism over time if if what you're saying is true then it is much more surprising that uh, the Bush administration by focusing a lot of uh, energy on this issue of political opportunity mm-hmm. focused almost no energy <laughs> on the effects of occupations um, t- correct a couple points on that I think I think when when historians look back on the role that that the freedom agenda played in President Bush's speeches, and the role that it played in Bush administration policies, they will see a very a rather dramatic disconnect, because um, we have long-standing alliances with countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, and those are two of the least representative countries in the Middle East, and yet not a lot of pressure on either of those two countries to dramatically reform their political processes. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, you need to separate kind of rhetoric from reality. I think there was a tendency to discount the importance of foreign occupation in places like Afghanistan and Iraq for a long time. Partly it's driven by a kind of natural American reaction that we are, are seen as liberators and will not be seen as past 
uh, empires occupying these lands. Um, I think we've learned a uh, kind of bitter experience that that doesn't really work that way, that in fact, um, we are still seen as outsiders and people question our motives fairly or not. Um, the irony, of course, is that in Iraq, it was the presence of foreign al-Qaeda elements uh, that was equally resisted by the Iraqi people. They were no more happy to have al-Qaeda uh, tooling around their country and frankly, um, you know, uh, wreaking uh, violence and chaos all over the country. So there was a kind of tension between which foreign occupier which they would they most like to cooperate with. Ultimately, it was a marriage of convenience with the United States and the, the, some of the Sunni tribesmen in the West. Um, and now it will be a problem for the new Iraqi government. So it is true the Bush administration did not seem... And the advocates for using uh, the war in Iraq as a as a vehicle for promoting progress, uh, for achieving progress in the war on terrorism, um, they did not they did not pay a lot of attention to this question of foreign occupation. And I think one of the great, um, one of the most salient arguments against that war continues to be that that military force uh, in counterterrorism tends to be counterproductive. I think that is certainly the case in Iraq, and I think it is becoming the case in Afghanistan. We need to focus on the elements of national power that do not rely heavily on military force, which frankly have had some of the most uh, some of the greatest successes uh, against Al Qaeda since 9/11 have not been achieved by military force, but but frankly by uh, intelligence services cooperating with one another, with local law enforcement, and with our own law enforcement. Where do you hope to see the biggest break in the Obama administration from the Bush administration in terms of uh, understanding and response to? Uh, terrorist activities. Well, I do think they agree. They understand that last point, the point I made about not conceiving this as chiefly a military problem. And I think I've spoken about this before, where even the frame "war on terrorism," most terrorism experts agree, is 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 really counterproductive, and it implies first that military action is the primary means when it's really only one of many and and not even the most important tool, but also it contributes to a sense of a war of us of a kind of clash of civilizations, which is very dangerous and counterproductive as well. And so I think even in the very short term that you'll just see the Obama administration using that language less and less. Uh, I don't expect to see some kind of formal announcement we have here, hereafter stopped using this term. That's what the Brits did, and I don't think we'll, we're going to see that here in the United States. But I think that because so many terrorism experts since 9-11, since President Bush declared a war on terrorism, have spoken out against that very language, that that can have a pretty dramatic impact on how uh, both people here in the United States and people abroad view our counterterrorism efforts and not see them only through the lens of U.S. military action. Christopher Preble is Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He'll be among the speakers at the Cato Institute's Counterterrorism Conference scheduled for January 12th and 13th. You can register to attend at Cato.org.